Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. It is so great to see you guys. I, I, I tell you what, it's like one of those moments where when you lose something, you don't have it, you forget how much you appreciate it. I was just reminded this morning of preaching to the empty room for five months last year, and now getting to come out and see you guys every Sunday morning is just such a treat. So I just wanted to thank you for, God, for making it out. And of course, those of you, yeah, praise God that we can do that, right? Thank you, God. And for those of you joining us online, we're so thankful that you are a part of this, and we love you guys. Thank you for making this a part of your Sunday as well. Uh, so this morning, we're going to be wrapping up the series, Trinity, that we've been in now for about a month, and um, talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how unique and beautiful this is as we bring it together and understand how Father, Son, and Spirit work together. And so today, what I'd like to do before I dive into this last message is to do a quick recap, because I think it sometimes it's helpful kind of catch you up. If you missed any of these messages, I want to encourage you to go back, check it out on our website, risersfellowship.com. Check out the messages there, and it'll help fill in some of the information, explanation that maybe you missed. So here we go. First and foremost, we need to understand that God is a loving Father before anything else, that He has been eternally loving His eternal Son. And here's what's so important about that, that we have to understand that He fundamentally is this loving Father because everything else He does comes from this heart of being a loving father. It helps us to frame and understand the more complicated, we're going to talk about this a little bit today, more complicated parts of who God is. And uh, this helps us to be able to understand, have a framework for how to understand that. And then week two, we talked about God the Son, and that Jesus, his functional role, if you will, within the Godhead, he came to earth not to just get you and I to behave. Like, just would you just act like Christians, please? Could you just be a little bit more, and behave a little better, and be a little bit more holy with your behavior? It was so much deeper and more meaningful than that. Jesus came to help correct the disordered loves of our heart. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that the disordered love of our heart means we either started to love the wrong thing or we love the right things in the wrong order. And this is what happened when sin first entered the world. It was loving self or something else. For Adam and Eve, it was loving themselves more than they loved God. They didn't stop loving. They're made in God's image, and God is love. So we love. We always love something. We just, we just uh, fasten our affections onto things that are not God, and it brings pain and suffering and evil into our life. So Jesus came to help correct that at the deepest level in our heart so that we now can love God and we can love our neighbor. Jesus, even when he was asked, what are the most important commandments in the Bible that we need to never forget? Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 22, where he says, to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, and all your, your mind. And he says, and it doesn't stop there. That love needs to overflow, that you need to love your neighbor as yourself, right? 
It's, it's, it's all about love. That God is love. He wants us to function within that love. And it is the greatest, like, fundamental purpose of our lives. This is the reason why we're here. And when we walk in and live in this purpose that Jesus came to provide for us, we find the greatest fulfillment and just we sync up with what it means to flourish as a human being in this life. Jesus laid it out so easy for us. Last week, we talked about God the Spirit. And that God's Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life and love. And the giver of life, it started in the first two verses of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that the Spirit was hovering above the deep, that the Holy Spirit was there at creation. And in verse 30 of chapter 1, he breathed life into all that God created. It was the Holy Spirit that gave life to what God created. And then when we come to the New Testament, the new life in Christ, from starting with Jesus himself, we're told that it was the Spirit of Almighty God that resurrected Jesus from the dead, that he was the firstborn among many brothers and sisters of all the children of God. He was the firstborn, and it was through Christ and his resurrection and him extending this incredible gift of salvation to all people that is through the Holy Spirit that we can, we can accept and personally have new life in Christ. And it is through the Holy Spirit that he doesn't just want you to just receive initially that life, but he wants that walk with Jesus, that relationship with God to daily transform you into the image of God, into the image of Jesus Christ, a big theological $10 word, sanctification is simply what that means. It's that he wants us to become more and more like him. And that is what his Holy Spirit is trying to do. And how does he do this? We looked at last week. He does this through the word of God. It's through us understanding the truth of God that it transforms us into the image of God. And that that should be a joyful and incredible experience. It's not always easy, but he wants to join us in that, and that through us growing spiritually to become more like Jesus, he's going to continue to give life. This is what he's always been doing. He wants to give life to other people. When we share the good news of Jesus with other people, he's already working in their hearts. The Spirit is already at work, and when we share, and we share our testimony, and we have coffee with people, and talk to them about our faith, we invite them to church. It's the Holy Spirit working through that circumstance to regenerate and give new life to other people. This is a beautiful how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together. A fundamental understanding of how they work. It's beautiful. Now today I want us to shift our focus to a question that was given by the psalmist over three millennia ago in Psalm 113 verse 5 who asked this question, who is like our God? Who is like this beautiful Trinitarian God that is revealed through Scripture? There has never been a God presented in all of history that comes close. Never been a being. There's never nothing that even comes close to this God. But yet there are many, and maybe you fall into this category, who have come to a misunderstanding about this God. And that misunderstanding has created distance, you're uncertain, you don't want to come close, you're a little scared, you're un you, it, it's, it, all this apprehension with God, it's created a wedge between you and God. So here's the question I want us to begin with today. Why do people often 
come to the wrong conclusion about God because it is often, often this happens. Now, I want us to talk about this from the, not only from where you might be or just where most people in an average kind of um, across our society might be, but even some of the top thinkers or the top atheists of our world in the last couple of decades have come to the same conclusion where they, would, they have gotten so bold and so aggressive that they would jump right over the argument whether God exists. They jump right into the argument, well, if God was to exist, that this God, it would be a horrible thing for you and I. It'd be nightmare-ish if God were to actually exist. And a lot of people, and maybe you too, have sort of come to that conclusion and it has been part of why you have stayed away from church or God or the Bible or faith and Christianity, whatever. And I want to read to you, there was a, probably one of the front runners in the last couple of decades in terms of the atheist world is Christopher Hitchens, this British um, atheist who was interviewed shortly before his death. And this is what he said about this particular topic when he was interviewed. He said this, I think it would be rather awful if it was true. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity. From the moment of your conception to the moment of your death, it would be like living in North Korea. Wow, right? So to Hitchens, and again, I want to be careful because you may say, I kind of have felt that way about God too. You might be feeling like that. If you're watching this online or here in the room, you might have felt that way or you feel that way now. But to Hitchens, here's the conclusion he has come to. He's come to the conclusion that God is a single person ruler in the sky God who by definition is a dictator in the sky God. And that conclusion has caused him to, you know, back away from God. And, and like, and who could blame him? Who in their right mind would want a God like that in their life, right? But here's the problem with Christopher Hitchens, and maybe you felt this way before, and I want to just to kind of reveal part of the problem with their conclusion. The atheist problem is not so much with the existence of God, but with the character of God the character of God that they have created in their own mind and they have superimposed upon him. The atheist, and maybe you felt this way too, is resistant and fights against the existence of God because they are repelled by a God ruler in the sky, single person, distant, cold, looking for servants and slaves to subjugate to which they have backed away and said, no way, I don't want a God like that. And if that, again, describes who God is, then Christopher Hitchens is right. God is not great, as he argues in his book. But the problem is, is that he has started with a false premise about God, which has gotten him to a false conclusion about God. And maybe, just maybe, that has happened to you too. Maybe not to the extreme, but maybe it has happened to you as well. That we must begin with, we must start with the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself through the pages of scripture. 
How has God chosen to unveil and reveal and disclose himself to us rather than what can we come up between our ears in terms of what we think God might be? We've got to start with who he actually is as a Trinitarian, loving God, a loving father, loving his eternal son, and out of that loving relationship, they're loving each other through the Holy Spirit and that the three of them have now made that love available to us. Now, let me uh, just share this with you, because I, I, I thought this was really fascinating. I came across this this week. Is that the, there are some theologians who have found this kind of parallel or correlation between the rise of the new atheism in our world today and the diminishment of the church's understanding of the Trinity. And, that, and, and they're right, really. They say if the church fails to understand that God is a loving father and that he is Trinitarian, which means his loving fatherliness is directed first and foremost to his loving son who is eternal. If God is not loving, he does not have a son. And if God does not have a son, that he does not have children. We don't get adopted into God's family if God does not have a son. If Jesus was just a man, he wasn't the son of God, we don't get adopted into his family. We don't, we don't become his Family, you see, when, when you don't have a Trinitarian God, you have a single person God, now you have a God who is distant, cold, unapproachable, and for most people, especially deeply intellectual people, they would rather have no God at all than to have a God like that. And can you blame them? But thank God, <laughs> that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the Trinitarian God of love, and it's so important that we understand him that way. That is who he is at his essence. Because if God is not Trinitarian, then he cannot be love at his core. At his core, he just simply would need slaves to do his bidding, right? And, but God wants children. He wants a loving relationship. Over and over, he tells us this. God so loved the world. He's motivated out of love. Everything he does is motivated out of that beautiful love. Now, so when we start to talk about God, we must be specific. We need to be careful how we talk about God because I don't know if you've noticed this, there's a lot of gods running around the cultural landscape these days. There's a lot of people who believe in a lot of crazy stuff that is not meshing with who God actually is in the Bible. We've got to make sure we understand God as Trinity because the moment we begin to drift away from the Trinitarian understanding of this God of love, this Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we begin to move into this cold, distant God. And here's what happens. You can always see it, what happens to people spiritually when they start to gravitate towards this distant, cold God. They will run from him and they will hide from him just like Adam and Eve coincidentally did at the first sin. When they sinned, they adopted at the same time a false understanding, a false conclusion about God, so they ran and hid, right? I don't want to be close to God. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to think about it. Why? Because of his wrath and his judgment, right? Don't, don't share God's word with me. Don't invite me to church. I don't want to hear. I don't want to I'm scared of that God. I'm, he, he freaks me out. I'm like really uncomfortable. I'm, that's awkward for me to even talk about, think about God. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you felt that way to, to, at some point in your life. Maybe you, you're still there. 
And maybe it's just a one area of your life. Like, I've surrendered a lot of my life, Will, to God, but there's this one area that I don't really talk to God about. I don't hardly ever bring it up because I know he's probably not happy with it, but I don't really want to know what his truth is about that, right? So let's talk for a little bit about this because this is probably one of the most difficult sticking points spiritually for many people that in the relationship with God or even just coming to God initially. How can a Trinitarian God of love also be a God of wrath? That's a good question. A lot of people struggle with that one. A lot of deeply intellectual people struggle with that one. And part of the reason for that is if you start to think about the wrath of God, it's horrifying, it's hideous, it's scary. And the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, if God is not Trinitarian, then you are absolutely right. It is hideous. It is horrifying. And there is nothing more scary than a God that's not motivated out of love. So to answer this question, where did God's anger come from? Where does that wrath come from initially? Let's go all the way back. We've done this each week. Let's go back to the origin story of when it began. And here's how it began. Until sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, and this is when the initial fall of humanity, original sin of Adam and Eve, when that entered the world, before that, God was never once angry. You realize that? God was never angry. Why? He had no reason to be. There's nothing to be angry about at all. Now, what I'd like to do is I'm going to give you some statements over the next couple of minutes right here that are really have behind them some deeply heavy theological concepts, but I'm going to try to boil them down as simply put as possible because I want you to understand this. It's important to understand that once sin entered the world, so did evil. Once sin entered the world, they come simultaneous. They come hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. Sin always brings evil. And you have to understand that anger is how the God of love responds to evil. He sees the evil because he sees what the evil is going to do to his people, his children, the ones that he loves, the ones that he cares about. And you see, God is angry at evil because he loves. And I bet any person here who is a parent has felt that at one time or another. You have seen something evil threaten your child, your grandchild. What did it do? Mm, man, it makes you mad, right? Nothing makes grandma, granddad, or mama, or daddy a little angry. Like seeing their baby hurt, right? seeing something, or even seeing your child or grandchild make horrible decisions for their life, and you know, you can see the train is coming down the tracks, and they're standing right in the middle, and here it comes, and you're like, I know how this story is going to end. I know I can play the movie. In my, I've lived long enough. I got enough wisdom. I've, I've done that. I've been down that road. I know, and part of you is compelled. I got to say something. I've got to do something, why? Because you're so judgy and, 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 you know, mean and wrathful and judgmental. No, because you love, right? It's amazing how you see this same heart of God reflected throughout the Old Testament. Even when God is beginning to allow the enemies of Israel to come in and take their city from them. Over in 
the prophet Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, there's this beautiful passage where God begins to explain what's about to happen to the Israelites, the Jewish people. And he loved, these are his people, he loves them. But they had turned their back on him. They had loved idols. They began to worship them, and evil things started happening. They were brutal and unfaithful to each other. They were hurting each other. They were going so far as to sacrificing their babies to these idols. And God's saying, enough. That can't happen anymore. You've turned your back on me, and there's a consequence with that. And over 150 years, and then there was another 150 years for Judah. From Israel, the northern kingdom, to Judah, the southern, God gave hundreds and hundreds of years to turn from that sin and turn back to me. And ultimately, here's how it ended. Here's verse 21 of chapter 28. Here's what God says. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim and will rouse himself in the valley of Gibeon. Let me give you a quick history lesson. Here's what's going on right here. He's talking about Mount Perizim. This is where God fought on behalf of King David. God loved, this was a man after his own heart. He loved King David. And this was during a time when the people's hearts were with him. He says, remember how I gave you victory over your enemies Mount Perizim. And then later, in the Valley of Gibeon, this was when God fought on behalf of his people alongside uh, Joshua. And he says, remember when I did that. Now here's what's about to happen. In these very places where I fought for you, I'm about to fight against you. I'm going to let your arch enemy, the Babylonians, are going to come in here and they're going to conquer you. And they're going to cart you off in exile. And you won't get to live here anymore because you have turned your back on me. And here's what he says. He says, to do his work, his, let's say it together, his strange work, and to perform his task, his alien task. God is showing you wrath and anger is not my go-to. It is not my default setting. It is strange. It is alien for my heart to go here. I don't like this. This is not the kind of daddy I want. Like anytime you've got to discipline your children, right? It hurts you. I know whenever you're on the receiving end of the SWAT, right? You're like, yeah, I know you're saying it hurts you as much as it hurt me, but it hurts me, I promise you, more than you. But you, you, you know when you're giving, you're like, I, don't, I love you. I don't want to have to discipline you. But God is not naturally angry, but evil provokes him. It provokes him. And his pure love cannot, cannot tolerate evil. And this makes perfect sense to me as a daddy. And anybody here who is a parent, you understand this. Like if I imagine for a moment my three girls, and they're in front of me, and they're being made to suffer because of evil. If I could just turn my head, yawn, and just like forget about it, that's proof I don't really love those girls. But if in my heart, vengeance, retribution, wrath begins to rise up in me, why? Precisely because I love those girls and I don't want to see that happen to them, right? And if that happens to me, and I bet it happens to every single one of you guys and those of you watching online, if that happens to us, Jesus tells us, if you know how to love your kids, how much more does your heavenly father 
a holy Trinitarian God of the Bible, how much more does he love you? How much more does he feel this when it happens to you and it happens to people on this planet? The Apostle Paul pulls back the curtain in a couple places in the New Testament to show us what real love looks like. In other words, what does it look like to mirror the love of God within your own life and your own relationships? And one of those places in in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, where he says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. In other words, sincere love hates evil. That's what it means. Sincere love hates evil. And it can't be okay with evil. I was thinking about this this week, and I um, read an excerpt from a book by a theologian. He's a Croatian theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf, who also is a teacher of religion, a professor of religion at Yale. And he talks about how he sort of Um, made this transference or he kind of got converted, if you will, in his theology. He went from thinking a God of love could never be a God of wrath. God could never show wrath. And he says, but witnessing the atrocities of the ethnic warfare of my own country, of seeing the horrible things that happened there, I I came to the, the understanding of the goodness of God's wrath. And I want to read to you something that he wrote in his book. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't the divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every single person and every creature. That is exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think about Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness as human beings? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that, it would have to, that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful in the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Such a powerful idea. You understand that God's wrath, his anger rises up out of his love. It's not like God has different moods, like he wakes up in a bad, wrathful mood one day and one other day he's loving. No, in his core, he's love. And he, everything he does, even his wrath, comes from that core of love. And that sincere love has to hate evil. It has to. 
Sincere love has to hate evil. Another place that the Apostle Paul talks about the, what love really looks like and what, how do we embrace the kind of love that God offers to us and the kind of love that he does give us is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. And I know you can't hardly go to a wedding these days and not hear these words, but I want to read to you verses 4 and 6 one more time just to understand the love of God. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. Jumping to verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the, let's say it together, rejoices with the truth. That God is love, therefore God is truth. To be loving, love loves the truth. For God to be love and for us to love God, we must acknowledge there is truth and that God is the definer. He is the moral arbiter of the universe and his truth should be our truth because his truth is the truth that navigates and guides the entire universe. But we live in a day, and you know this, where everybody's making up their own truth. You live your truth, right? Everybody's got their own truth. You define who you are, how you are, what you're gonna do, and we make that up, and we are living in conflict with, and people wonder, why can't I find peace? Why can't I feel okay about myself? Why do I finally feel, or constantly feel tortured? Why do I constantly feel this dissension within my own soul? Because you are living in conflict with God's truth about you, and it came from a place of love. In order to receive his love, you've got to receive his truth. In order for you to be set free from your past and all that stuff that is holding you down, the stuff that is causing you to want to hide and run from God, you must embrace his truth about you and about your life. You see, Jesus always equated loving him with embracing his truth. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You don't obey the truth that I have given you. In Matthew chapter 7, where he says, the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish person who goes out and builds their house on sand, like right on the beach with no foundation. It is a futile exercise. It is a life that is bound to collapse in on itself. Don't live like that. To embrace my truth is to embrace my love. And right now, what I'd like to ask you to do in these last couple of moments together, would you just get really honest with God about the part of your life where you've been hiding you, you, from God? You, you've not experienced his love because you're not willing to embrace his truth. You're scared of his wrath and his vengeance, right? Because you're not willing to open up your heart in your life, to know that he actually loves you and he actually wants to embrace you in that love and that he will work in and through your life through the Holy Spirit and bring you to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and that that trinity wants to envelop you, extend to you the love that they have for each other, and they want to envelop you in that love so you might be able to live in it and experience it every day. Would you be open? 
Would you confess your sins? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we will confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a deal. What an amazing, loving God we have. Would you be willing to open up your heart today? Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.